Listeners, and welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today, I'm joined by Hilary Leichter to talk about her new novel, Terrace Story. Hilary Leichter is the author of the novels Temporary and Terrace Story. She has been a finalist for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize, the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Prize, and her work in Harper's Magazine won the 2021 National Magazine Award in Fiction. She teaches at Columbia University and lives in Brooklyn, New York. In Tara's story, Annie, Edward, and their young daughter Rose live in a cramped apartment. One night, without warning, they find a beautiful terrace hidden in their closet. It wasn't there before, and it seems to only appear when their friend Stephanie visits, a city dweller's dream come true. But every extra bit of space has a hidden cost, and the terrace sets off a seismic chain of events, forever changing the shape of their tiny home and the shape of the world. Terra Story follows the characters who suffer these repercussions and reverberations, the little family of three, their future now deeply uncertain, and those who orbit their fragile universe. The distance and love between these characters expands limitlessly across generations. How far can the mind travel when it's looking for something that is gone? Where do we put our loneliness, longing, and desire? What do we do with the emotions that seem to stretch beyond the body, beyond the boundaries of life and death? Hi, Hillary. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for having me again. <laughs> yeah, I think you're actually my first uh, two-timer. Oh, my God. I'm so honored. Thank you. Yeah. Official double dipper. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> So I want to start this interview uh, just by saying I had the pleasure of being a very early reader of Tara's story um, and was lucky enough to chat with you in the literal moments after finishing the novel. Um, I told you, quote, the trippiest part about finishing this book is that the world feels absolutely massive now. It's like I looked up from the story and everything is so much more vast than when I started. You then told me this was a perfect reaction. Why was that a perfect reaction? I did say that, didn't I? It was a, it, it, it was a perfect reaction. And I, I just want to say, too, that I'm so grateful you got to read it early and talk to me about it because it was so... You never know what you've made, really, until you start talking to the people who are reading it. And to hear you say that when it was something that I was trying to achieve was so important to me. So thank you. Um, it was the perfect reaction because I went into writing and editing this book, which is about a magically appearing and disappearing terrace, thinking about the formal challenge of how we indicate space in fiction. And even more than that, how a book can feel expansive and enormous, or conversely, claustrophobic and extremely small. And I wanted to experiment with doing that. Like, can I make this book contract and expand the way that Annie and Edward's apartment contracts and expands? And I didn't want to use uh, visual tricks. I didn't want to add a whole bunch of footnotes. I didn't want you know, the text to loop around the edges of the pages. There right. are 
many beautiful books that do that kind of work and they do it much better than I could ever hope to do. Uh, what was interesting to me was the question of whether or not the prose itself can indicate something expanding or contracting. And so when you said that the world felt big after you finished reading, <laughs> my, heart, <laughs> my heart skipped a beat. It really did. I love that. Did I mean, out of my own curiosity, um, did you did you ever experiment with actual format uh, when you were writing Tara's story in terms of, you know, like, you know what I mean? You just said it. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't because a lot of t my writing process is really fast and really beyond my control. And so when mm. I was writing the book, the structure came to me naturally and in order. I wrote it the way that you're reading it. Um, I didn't write it. I mean, the, the book is not in chronological order, but I didn't write it in chronological order. I wrote it out of order the way that the reader receives the book. And I think it's really important to kind of figure out what a book is after you've finished writing it, or at least that's what's important to me. I don't presume to know what I've made <laughs> until I've made it. And so <laughs> once I had this very strange first draft, I started thinking about what it was I had written. And that's when this challenge arose for me. And so I never mm. added a ton of extra blank space. There are certain tricks in there that are just invisible things happening that were very intentional for me. Um, there's a character in the book without spoiling too much who has mm -hmm. a very specific kind of relationship to space and to creating space and to uh, manipulating the space mm -hmm. between people. And so that section, there is a lot more white space and it's not in an experimental way. It's just that the paragraphs are more distanced from each other. Um, it's the only section in the book that uses M dashes. Uh, mm -hmm. The only other parts in the book that use it are in this particular character's dialogue as if she's the only character who is able to add that amount of distance between two words, which I think gets the longest amount of distance that can grammatically exist between <laughs> two words. I don't, don't quote me on that. Well, I, I guess I just quoted myself on that. I don't know. Um, so there's a lot of things like that happening under the surface, which I don't expect anyone to notice, but they're all within the bounds of what we expect from mm -hmm. a block of prose. And mm -hmm. yeah, so I never... I never messed around with uh, like concrete poetry in the middle of the book. Maybe I should next time. <laughs> um, you did touch on kind of at the beginning of that response, just uh, like how how the story kind of came came to be. Um, originally, it was written as a short story for Harper's Magazine um, and ends on such a cliffhanger. Uh, <laughs> did you know at the time that you wanted to expand this into a full novel? No, I didn't. I mm. I never know anything, Alex. I really, <laughs> everything is a mystery to me. Um, no, I, I wrote it. I wrote the short story in 2017. And it was mm. an idea that I had been thinking about for a while because like many New Yorkers, I had spent most of my adult life in very small apartments without any outdoor space, mm -hmm. naturally. 
um, except for the occasional stoop, which I would sit on <laughs> gladly. Uh, and so I was thinking about, well, what if I, what if I suddenly had a terrace? What if I had a magic wardrobe, like in children's literature, but, but for adults, you know, what would that mm-hmm. look like? And then I sat down to write it and it, it was, it was what appears in Harper's magazine. There was never, there was never, yeah, anything else to it. Um, at least not that I could see. Um, and then the story was published in 2020, like right at the right. very beginning of the pandemic I think May or June, mm-hmm. and the idea of feeling cramped and feeling shut in, and also feeling distant from everyone around you, had a mm-hmm. whole new meaning that I had not anticipated. And so the story came back for me, and I started to reconsider: Is there something else here? Is there a hidden terrace in my story that's actually a novel? And that's that's when I started thinking about it again. But yeah, no, I. Um, uh, t- temporary was also a short story and that became a novel right. without my permission. <laughs> and I, <laughs> but <laughs> this next book is not, has never been a short story. This book I'm working on now. Um, so I, I think that was just a fluke thing that happened twice. I don't, I don't know if it'll ever happen again. <laughs> I mean, Hey, I'll take them. Thank you. <laughs> They're yours. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we did also kind of touch on this earlier. It's not really spoilers, but Stephanie's character has the ability to, you know, quote, magically create space in Terra Story. Um, in our current climate, and here I would like to think of the question through the lens of the fight for equality, and even more specifically, I would say gender mm-hmm. equality. Why write a story about creating space that isn't necessarily about taking up space? Hmm, that's such a beautiful question. Uh, the way that space is a metaphor in the way that we think about dealing with and talking to and living with other people is fascinating to me. And it's not just the idea of making space, making room at the table, uh, not taking up too much space, not kind of, you know, man spreading your way through your life. Um, it's not, it's also this idea of the way we hold space for each other, which is a beautiful idea that I also sometimes find kind of troubling because if you're holding space for me, can, is it okay for me to go there? Or is it just, (laughs) is it just extra added space that is preventing us from connecting? Um, I often feel like I want space from everyone around me. And at the same time, I want that space invaded. I want to be held and I want to be left alone simultaneously. <laughs> um, and then we are living in a planet that it does not have enough space for us. Mm-hmm. Um, these problems were exciting to me and troubling to me. And I wanted to create a character who contains some of those paradoxes where she wants desperately to connect with people. She doesn't want to be alone. She has this ability to make room for everyone around her and it leaves her completely isolated. And, you know, her section of the book I feel is a tragedy. Um, And so that, that was an exciting idea 
to me, the idea that you could have this ability to make room for people and then still they can't make room for you. So temporary and terror story are definitely like complementary novels to me, even though they are so different. Uh, a strong current that I've found in your work through these two novels is this story of family. Um, mm. In temporary, it comes across maybe a little bit more nuanced and, and, and the idea is really fleshed out towards the end of the novel. But Terrace Story is an intergenerational novel in so many ways. Um, both of them contain a certain warmth in this regard as well. What mm. interests you in writing about family in a way that isn't necessarily or outwardly plagued with excessive trauma as so many <laughs> other intergenerational novels seem to be. Gosh, that's wonderful. I never even really thought about my work as being about <laughs> family. I mean, of course it is, but mm -hmm. in the way that all work is about, all writing is somehow about love too. Right. So it's not, yeah, I don't know if it's something I've spent a lot of time considering, but if, if a family is a kind of center for misunderstanding and connection and affection and grief, then mm -hmm. it feels like, you know, talking about spaces, it feels like the ideal space to explore the way that we treat each other, the way that we fail to see each other the way that we do see and love each other. And so it feels like a natural place to go. And those are the questions that are most interesting to me mm -hmm. in all of my writing, um, how, how we connect or, or don't. And yeah, so, but that's, yeah, I guess, I mean, of course it's a book about family. It's literally a book about a family. <laughs> um, and I think, I think a lot of times, uh, there's this weird foreshadowing in my own life that my books take on, you know, I, mm -hmm. with temporary, I was trying to imagine what the next part of my life would look like. And then with this book, it's the same. So, you know, I'm, I'm much less interested in where the inspiration for books come from in my own experience and much more interested in how they kind of ricochet into whatever is next and beyond my mm. control. And so Terrace Story is an experiment in thinking about what I want family to look like for me in my future and what I don't want it to look like also. <laughs> I should say that before anyone gets concerned. <laughs> that is a really beautiful answer, though. Thank you. Following off on that one and kind of that, that similarity between the two novels, um, I do also want to talk about the major difference between their styles. Uh, temporary is this absurdist or abstract adventure story. Um, and at this point, I do want to actually encourage listeners to tune into Hillary and my first Weird Era interview about Temporary to hear more on this. Um, but I'm not going to lie, I was expecting Terror Story to follow in a similar style. Um, instead of an absurdist novel, you've gifted us with magical realism and sci-fi. Um, <laughs> was it a conscious decision for you to step away from absurdism with Terror Story? No, not at all. I still love absurdism and I still love 
comic writing and I hope there I hope there's a little comedy in Terror Story, even though it's definitely oh, yes. not it's like there's some jokes, right? There are yeah, a few yeah, jokes. Yeah, yeah. It's here and there, but it's de- it's definitely not a funny book. Uh no, I don't um you know, I think those are ways of talking about writing that already exists. Mm-hmm. And when a piece of writing doesn't exist yet, I I find it I find it unhelpful to talk about it at all when it doesn't exist yet. But right. I also find it unhelpful to it, it seems like there's a lot of pressure to say, oh, I'm working on this to use some of the words you just said, an intergenerational, you know, romp through um a cityscape <laughs> or whatever. That's not, that's not a book that exists, but there's, there's this weird pre- pressure to figure out what you're working on before, before it's done. And, mm. um, I def, I don't, I try not to think about that because I want to be a student of whatever is happening to me when I write something. So it definitely wasn't a conscious decision. What was conscious is that I, I never want to make the same thing twice. And, in a certain way, we're always writing the same stories over and over again. We're always dealing with the same themes because those are the things that interest us as writers and we keep coming right. back to them. And any theme or idea worth thinking about, I think, is probably going to take up more than one book, more than one book's worth of ideas. Um, so, so to counteract that, to counteract mm. that sameness, I really want each book I write to be a completely different beast. And it was clear from the start with this, that it would not look like temporary at all. And that, and I was okay with that. Yeah. 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 Um, how would you differentiate writing absurdism from writing magical realism? (laughs) I don't know that I even see terror story as magic realism. I mean, of course, that's how a lot of people will describe it. It's how you just described it, too. Uh, how would you a, quantify I, I, it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, you're going to laugh at me, but I think it's a realist novel. And I know that totally sounds fair. wacky. Um, no, totally fair. Yeah, I'd like to push back on the idea that surrealism or magic realism is something that exists outside of realism. I think mm-hmm. that that presumes that the world ends at the limit of our understanding of it. And maybe there is a terrorist somewhere that magically <laughs> appears. I mean, of course there isn't, but maybe there, but as a metaphor, maybe there is. And right. so I see it as a realist novel with a couple of unexpected things, but I find the world very unexpected. So, um, yeah, it didn't occur to me that I was writing magic realism. Um, I think with absurdism though, what I found was there's a necessary wall in the prose and part of the pleasure of reading really good absurdist fiction Mm -hmm. are the moments where that wall collapses for just a split second and you can see through the facade you can see through all of the kind of uh uh, barricades that the voice has put up into something Mm -hmm. true and the fact that the truth is concealed 
it becomes part of the plot, the game that you play with the voice of that narrator. And I, I tried to do that in temporary, but something that that necessitates is a real, you got to like really carefully dole out the emotion, you know, it's like not, and I, I, and I wanted to take that wall down with this book. I wanted there to be greater access and, Mm -hmm. I think it's challenging to convey sentiment clearly and without sentimentality. And I wanted to take that challenge on. And so the walls in this book are not the voice. The walls kind of became the structure and the formal limitations that I set up. I think, uh, and again, we, we kind of talked about this, very briefly earlier as well. Um, I, I think with this book, you've hit on something that is of real concern with our generation, uh, where most of us are in our 30s and 40s now and struggling to find the types of homes our parents would be buying mm. at this stage in their lives. I wanted to talk a little bit about how the widespread housing crisis informed the shape that Terrace story would take. Um, mm-hmm. But I I think the answer might be a little bit obvious. So I think I would rather ask, with all of this context, um, does this mean Stephanie is a savior character at her core? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you could, again, without spoiling too much, you could argue that she kind of ends the world also. Uh, but you could also argue that maybe we don't deserve the world anymore. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to put any moral weight on any of these characters cause they all do wrong. They all do good. Mm-hmm. Um, they all do things that are neutral. They make selfish decisions. They make, uh, enormously kind decisions as well. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say she's a savior, but, but she is grappling with a, the problem very literally that we're all grappling mm-hmm. with. She's grappling with this idea that the world is incredibly large and our understanding of it is stingy today and there's there's we have a limitless capacity for violence and greed and then our capacity for kindness and generosity seems to be shrinking Um, I think she's dealing directly with those ideas and so in a world where there are empty office buildings uh, sitting in the middle of Manhattan and also unhoused people on every street. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It's a dearth of space and it's an excess of space at the same time. And it comes back to the idea. I think that we, we know the answers, we know how to fix things. And then we don't. Mm -hmm. Um, And and when I say we, of course, I don't mean (laughs) you and I personally. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but as a as a world, we there's there's very little mystery about what we're doing wrong. Mm. The mis and yeah, I think the the mysteries are elsewhere. 
also just for clarification. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess now looking back at this question, it does simplify Stephanie's character a little bit too much. But I think I was just asking, wouldn't we all want a good friend who could just create space for us? <laughs> oh my <laughs> Is God, she not I went... a savior that way? Do we not all want a Stephanie desperately to give us outdoor spaces? Oh, I went too dark. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hate when I do that. Yes, no, of course she is a savior in that respect. She's, I mean, she's a, gosh, I feel for her in that, in that way where the, the other characters are getting something out of her very specific, mm-hmm. but they, they don't like her, you yeah. know? And I think, I think if we're really honest, we all have people like that in our lives and, mm. Um, so yes, she's, she's saving them and that undoes them in the end. Yeah. I wish I had a friend who could turn my, (laughs) my, like my junk drawer into like a elegant little balcony. That would be so nice. (laughs) I I guess I, I will also jump off of that as well. Um, you know, without giving too much away in way of spoiler, um, Stephanie's body eventually does deteriorate. Um, What does that say about people who give too much? Is this also commentary about women giving too much of themselves? I think so. I think that's in there. Um, Mm. It's in temporary as well. Mm. Uh, The kind of expectation that will go above and beyond even if it means self injury or, or death or, mm-hmm. you know, we'll expand ourselves to accomplish what someone else needs and then shrink ourselves so that the harm that it is done is invisible. Mm-hmm. I think that's in there. Um, but, but I think that applies to people in general, you know, I think that even, right. uh, you know, not just, not just women, um, the, there's a, there's a way in which we all have moments of feeling like we've given too much or feeling like we've not given enough. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a universal emotion. You present readers with a kind of time is a flat circle narrative (laughs) in Tara's story. I'm thinking of the line, you're blocking the door, Stephanie, which comes up a number of times, as well Mm. as the specific uh, passage, quote, she could not pick apart the moment, the order of events. It had already happened, but it was also still happening. And she would sometimes remember it wrong because it hadn't happened yet. Do you believe time is a flat circle? (laughs) I I don't know if I believe time is a flat circle, but time in fiction interests me a great deal. And Mm -hmm. I teach a class about uses of time in fiction and time travel in fiction at Columbia. And so it's in my head. I spend a lot of time thinking about time. And um, I didn't know that. Sorry, I'm geeking out. Oh, yeah. Because that's so cool. It's a it's a it's an interest of mine. I I wanted with this book, you know, it's about space, but anything that's about space is also about time. It has to Mm -hmm. be. Uh, So I, 
it it was important to me to think about a world that folds in on itself, a world that where time works in unexpected ways, where it's not a simple cause and effect kind of narrative, but where the effect sometimes happens before the cause, where we see the results of something before we even understand the action that produced those results. And I think that's a way of dealing with consequence and culpability that interests me in fiction. Um, It's a way of removing characters from the idea that they're only beholden to their backstories. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephanie in particular feels governed by something that hasn't happened to her yet. And I think that's a valid feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about the ways the future can also press down on the present, especially in this moment we're living in where it feels like everything is a question of whether or not there will be a future. What do you find interesting about the future? That it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Are you optimistic? Oh, I don't know. Is anyone up? I mean, I have hope. I think you have to, there, there's still things worth living for and being born for and experiencing Mm -hmm. there. There's still, there are still things worth waking up for. Mm -hmm. And the future is this second and this second and this second. And I'm getting to talk to you. It's, you know, the future is very big, but also minute to minute. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, it's, yeah, something I'm a fan of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Out of curiosity, uh, could you give me like maybe two of your favorite, um, time travel stories? Ooh, well, so the class is a little bit of time travel and a little bit of books that just use time in an interesting way. Yeah. So if yeah, that okay. Ca- okay. So, okay. Yeah, that anyway, we can count those. Give me one cool, of cool. each. Okay. So I, um, love the book that time of year by the French writer, and I I believe I'm pronouncing this right, but forgive me if I get it wrong, um, Marie Mm Ndaye. And it's it's about a man who, a a Parisian man who is on vacation in the French countryside with his wife and his child. And they leave the countryside to go back to Paris every year on... August 31st. Hmm. And this, this particular year, they stay an extra day. And on September 1st, it starts torrentially raining. (laughs) It's dark 24 hours a day. And his wife and his child have disappeared. And so it's this weird, it's like the summer people, it's this weird take on, um, uh, tourism and being in exile and it's it's beautiful it's a wonder Mm -hmm. and it's funny it's a very strange book i i highly recommend all of her work actually um and then one more hmm well this book is this is a delightful book uh the throwback special by chris batchelder i'm not Um, familiar it's 
It's uh, it's about a group of middle-aged men who meet every year to reenact a three-second football play. <laughs> and it's about reenactment. It's about aging. It's about aging out of things where you feel relevant. Um, mm. It's you get to go into the minds of all of these men. I think there are like 40, 50 of them. Uh, it's a it's a comic novel. It's wonderful. Wow. So those are two books that kind of use time in an unexpected way. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you can call them time travel books, but I certainly do. <laughs> and then my <laughs> students are like, is this time travel? And I'm like, I don't know. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess if I was going to ask one more question kind of on that, um, did you have any kind of direct inspirations um, from maybe books that you're teaching in this course that inspired Tara's story? Um, not from that class, but I I thought a lot about the poetics of space when I was editing this book. Mm. Um, it's a beautiful book that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in, you know, not just writing and writing about the places where we live, but who's interested in thinking about the places where we live. Mm-hmm. Um And I thought a lot about Muriel Spark, who's one of my favorite writers. And especially Mm -hmm. with the first section of the book, I was thinking about her short story, The Portobello Road, which is kind of this perfect ghost story. Um, I read a bit of Laurie Colin. Each each section is a little bit of an homage to a different... um, female writer that I adore. I thought about Barbara Comins a lot and the vet's mm-hmm. daughter in writing yeah. about Stephanie. Um, and uh, yeah. Thank you. That was just selfish. Yeah. I just wanted to hear it. Oh, great. No, I, <laughs> I love sharing. And could you also continuing my selfishness? Um, <laughs> do you know exactly when Tara's story takes place? Um, that's a complicated question. I do, but it doesn't necessarily make logical sense. The, the each, I know where each section of the book, I know when each section of the book takes place in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. but it would add a, a few years. It would add a few extra years that wouldn't make sense in, but, but I kind of don't care. I think that, I think that, uh, the way that we write a kind of nostalgic prose, it it mm-hmm. conveys something where you don't need to know the time period. You can situate yourself. Um, uh, the second section of the book, I was really thinking of a type of um, like female writer from the 70s or 80s writing about living in New York. And that doesn't necessarily work chronologically with where these characters end up, but but. So, I mean, I don't, <laughs> like, there are no rules, right? Who cares? And, no, yeah. exactly. And at the end, we end up in the future, mm-hmm. kind of far in the future. But yeah. um, I think to say any more than that would be giving too much away. <laughs> okay, fine. If Terror Story is at its core 
uh, story about the spaces we occupy and create. Can the novel be perceived as a warning? God, I hope I never write anything that's a warning. That just seems so mm. arrogant. Right? I mean, I... It, it I don't presumes, think... Not necessarily. Um, I don't know. I... I think to, to warn presumes that I know something more than my reader does. And mm. I think that the book is what happens when the reader reads what I've written. So if that results in a warning, it's not a warning that comes from me. It's a warning that comes from the thing that we've both made together by you reading it and me writing it. Um, no, I, I don't think, I don't know that it's a warning. I think it's a, um, if anything, it's my way of grappling with a world that's very hard to describe today mm. and a world where um, a lot of people feel placeless and a lot of people feel confused and a lot of the things that were there three, four years ago are not where we left them. Right. And I wanted to kind of, I wanted to capture that. So it's a, it's a picture of a moment in time, I think. To end this interview off, because we are at the end, you kind of teased something at the top of the interview. Um, oh, no. Would you care to divulge anything about what you're currently working on? Sure. Yes. It's a, it's a novel. <laughs> I can tell you, because it's, it's already underway. <laughs> so I feel... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, it's a novel yeah. period that's the answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh it's a, i can say a little more it's um mm -hmm. it's a novel it's it's sort of historical fiction it takes place in a restaurant in new york city from turn of the century 1900 to now and uh it's about a woman who works there and the restaurant can only afford to stay open for one night every 25 years. So she goes to work there, they're open, they disappear after that first night of dinner service and um, it reappears 25 years later. So it's a little bit strange as because <laughs> I can't help myself apparently. Uh, and, uh, but it's also, about New York. It's about the history of New York. It's about restaurant culture. It's about, mm. um, it's a love letter to the city. It's about eating a meal together, <laughs> which is some, one of my favorite things to do with people. So that's what I'm working on now. Thank you so much, Hillary. It's always a joy talking to you. Thank you for having me, Alex. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. This was so much fun. <laughs> and thank you listeners.